Welcome to Rooftop Report, a key safety podcast where we will be discussing everything from fall protection misconceptions to how key safety is making a difference in the improving safety for today's workforce. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Rooftop Report a podcast produced by Key Safety focused on providing you with the knowledge and expertise that you need to separate your people from hazards. I'm your host, Dan Huntington, and our guest today is one of the smartest people in the world of fall protection and a valued friend of mine, Mr. Bill Parsons. Bill is the Group Technical Director for Key Safety, Inc., as well as the Chair of the Canadian Standards Association Technical Committee on Fall Protection, and a member of the ANSI Z359 Technical Committee in Fall Protection in the U.S. In 2017, Bill was awarded the Canadian 150 Award by the House of Commons of Canada for services to occupational health and safety. And today we get to pick Bill's brain on how to reduce risk and increase productivity at work through a people-focused approach in fall protection safety. Bill? Thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's a true honor to have you with us. Uh, thank you, Dan. It's a real treat for me to be here as well and have a chance to do this with you. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it very much. And Bill, I really am excited to get into the conversation and, and like I said, explore your expertise. I feel like I needed to take a drink of water halfway through uh, reading your bio. You've accomplished so much. So it, it truly is an honor to have you here. And to get the conversation started, Bill, I'd like you to just kind of fill out um, a little bit of background on what you and your friends at the ANSI committee and the CSA committee do to ensure the safety of their workers while using fall protection equipment. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I mean, for me, I grew up in the steel business. So that's structural steel, up on high work, iron workers, welding, you know, the, the things you can imagine and our listeners would imagine uh, from being in, you know, what steel construction looks like. And that experience taught me that in working with those crews of people, that in order for them to be protected at height required a lot of engagement with them, especially in the early days when fall protection wasn't, you know, equipment and systems and risk assessments and all the things that we do more as a matter of course today in our working lives didn't exist in the early days, especially with working at, at height with steel. It was part of the trade that it didn't work that way. So we started a process with our crews to engage them with fall protection uh, equipment at first and then in other ways, uh, which we'll discuss today afterwards. And what I, what I came to find out was that, you know, our community around us has expectations around uh, being protected. So, we're, you know, we expect cars to have good safety systems in them and we expect to have good traffic lights so that the cars can interplay with one another and stuff like that. And similarly for safety, our community expects us to be able to go to work, work safely at work, not be exposed to hazards unnecessarily to manage how we do that and so that everybody can go home safe at the end of the day. And the standards committees that I've been involved in for close to 20 years now are one of the manifestations of those community expectations. So they say to a bunch of people who are experts in that field, in this case, fall protection, get together and tell us what the equipment needs to do, what the systems need to do that reflects our expectation to get people to go home safe every day. So those people around the table 
reflect what is effectively the state of the art in the technology of the time back to the community in in the equipment that we that we produce that's really what it's all about yeah absolutely i mean it, you think about it if you're a steel worker you're several stories up and the only thing between you and a potential fatal accident is a lanyard or maybe an srl block and you as the worker have an absolute expectation that when an accident occurs that that will work properly and save your life and that's the work that you and your friends at, at ASSP ANSI and the CSA are doing to make sure that that it that expectation is reality so that is extremely important work that you guys are doing so i i just want to thank you for that and just appreciate that thank you very much it really is about reflecting a, a confidence back to the community Absolutely. And, you know, Bill, you, you have a unique perspective uh, in North America and that you have a foot in both camps um, in Canada as well as the U.S. in fall protection legislation. And I'd like to just, you know, kind of lean or learn from your experience from Canada to influence in the U.S. You know, what are is there anything that you're doing in Canada from a legislative standpoint in fall protection that we could learn from in the U.S. or that we can improve on in the U.S.? Yeah, it's interesting. The regulatory environment in the U.S. and in Canada is is very similar. There's an awful lot of alignment there. And you'd sort of expect that because culturally we're very much alike, Canada to the U.S. What I find really interesting, though, is that in both Canada and the U.S., we tend to focus in our regulations on equipment and the provision of equipment. And in other jurisdictions like the UK, for example, but others, they focus more on behavioral activities. So there's an engagement there with a work site, with the supervision that, in, that makes the people uh, pay attention to risk assessments and to evaluating the tasks that are in hand on any given day. So the equipment becomes a part of that, certainly, but it's not mm. the only thing that's part of it. And it's the legislation is written in such a way that it focuses the people in on on those things, whereas in North America, the legislation focuses people more towards the equipment side. So that that is a big difference, and it, it, we find that that you know the engagement of the people to do those risk assessments and do behavioral activities uh, on the job sites is bearing itself out in the results of fatalities at work. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Per 100,000 workers, so that just gives a common denominator that allows us to compare two different jurisdictions uh, having different populations and GDPs and things. In the, in the US, uh, in 2006, we had 4.2 fatalities per 100,000 workers at work. And in 2017, that had worked, that, that had reduced by about 20% to, to 3.5 uh, fatalities per 100,000 workers. And we think it sounds like a pretty low number. In the UK, that number in 2006 was 0 0.84 and 2017, 0.44. So wow. in actual fact, the rate of fatality in the United States at work is eight times what it is in the UK. And one of the fundamental differences that is resulting in that in that discrepancy or that big difference in the numbers for the U.S. and the U.K. 
is the behavioral versus singular equipment approach to things. It's about having people be part of the solution, not taking a, a piece of equipment and saying, here's the safety equipment. You know, we've ticked the box and we meet OSHA requirements. It's actually about understanding the work being done and looking at, at human behavior as an element in that work. Is that a fair kind of summary? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, in all in all safety things, we want people to have reliable systems, don't we? You know, we mm-hmm. we we look to have we look to have the systems that they have be safe, obviously, right? So they have they have to have the strength and the way they perform and all that stuff um, has to add up to actually working, so that their their safety is maintained. Um, so that's obvious. The, the other things that we that we also want the safety equipment to do or the, the safety process to do is to maintain the workers' productivity. So if, if they have to focus on managing equipment and a, and a system and a setup, it distracts them from the task. So we, we, we want to make sure that the, the system and the, the equipment and all of that stuff that they are using uh, keeps them keeps them productive. Bill, those are really good points. And it brings me right to my next question, which are, you know, what are the benefits when safety professionals start to shift their mindset around fall protection from an equipment focused solution to a people focused solution? Yeah, I think Dan, it's about the reliability, right? So obviously if I talk about reliability, I think I want, I want the safety system, the protection to be safe, obviously, but I also want it to be productive as well. Mm. And by, by productive, I mean the person who has to take this package of equipment has to understand what they're going to do with it. They have to set up the system, connect it all together, pieces and bits together in such a way as to, to establish what that safety system is. And then all that being fine, the question then is, is it then going to be a distraction to them as they go about their work? Because like texting and driving, if my job is to drive the car and I pay attention to the texting, now I'm affecting the way I can drive the car. Everybody understands that. At work, at working at height, where the, where the environment can be a bit harsh, the spaces can be a bit tight or a bit small, uh, it's the same idea. If my safety system, my lanyard, my harness, my SRL block, my anchorage, whatever have you, requires so much management that it takes me away from my task, then it affects my productivity. And that causes my confidence to go down because maybe I'm getting pressure from my boss to get the task done. And if I've got this protection system that's slowing me down, I'm not going to like that very much. And in fact, you know, what we find is that a great number of fatalities and injuries occur in the workplace in part because the equipment is not being used at all or even correctly if it is being used. And part of the reason I think that's true is that if people don't find it easy to use and simple to use and they understand how to use it in a nice, consistent way, then they tend to shy away from it because they're more focused on getting the task done. So in that way, it has to be productive. And, and of course, the other thing that it has to do is meet meet the needs of the situation that's in hand. So for instance... You know, we might say as a safety professional, I'm going to put a ladder climbing system, uh, a cable on a ladder that I have to send a worker up to get onto a rooftop as an access point. 
if I go to that to that ladder, connect onto the cable, climb up the ladder, now I have a post or a connector or some kind of structure that's associated with that cable system that in all likelihood is going to interfere with the space available for me to get off the ladder and get onto the roof. I've got a very narrow window, maybe only 12 or 14 inches to get through. Okay. So for me, as a guy who weighs I don't know, 190 pounds or so, that's one thing. But if I'm a big iron worker and I weigh 280 pounds, maybe it's possible I'm not going to fit in that space. So it doesn't, mm-hmm. that protection system in that moment and at that time for that person doesn't meet their needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so, it's so important to think about the user experience, right? And this, this concept that, you know, this is the rules, you need to follow them um, or else, you know, be punished. That, that seems like such an antiquated approach in fall protection and in safety. Uh, but I think it's still fairly prevalent today. Um, and I would like to, you know, just thinking about my experience and kind of the concepts, I'd like to give some real world examples of how, you know, I've seen clients take a people focused solution in fall protection and come up with a solution that actually protects the worker, makes the job more efficient and meets all the regulatory needs. Uh, you know, that govern the site. So I'll give you a few examples. We've been at sites before where there's been equipment that in- requires people, you know, they're trying to get from point A to point B on a roof, and there might be an obstacle in the way, whether it's ductwork or um, conduit pipe or something like that. And they would be required to climb over it or walk around it, forcing them to come very close to the edge of the roof to get around this obstacle. And instead of just making a rule that says, you know what, you you cannot climb on it and you can't go near the roof. You know, when you go near the roof, you have to put on your harness and your lanyard to connect to this anchor point to, you know, get around that uh, corner or whatever it is. What they said is, listen, we know the guys are going to just climb over this equipment. So let's just give them a safe way to do that. Let's put a crossover stair, you know, with a, a work platform and guardrails on either side so they can get from point A to point B safely. You know, every time I'm, I am on site, I always think of an example. Uh, when I went to college, I was talking to uh, the people who ran the facilities there, and they said that what they would do is for the longest time they had signs that said, you know, do not walk on the grass, only walk on the sidewalk. Nobody, you know, do not walk on the lawn, blah, blah, blah. And they would try to enforce this rule that, you know, we don't want you to walk on our lawn. They would put signs up, but we were college students. So, Everybody would walk on the lawn. Whatever path is the most efficient to get from point A to point B is what we would take. And they said they had a fundamental shift in their mindset. And they said, you know what? Instead of trying to force everybody to do the process that we want them to, let's just start building sidewalks where we see a common path going through the grass and just meet our needs and and the people's needs at the same time. So they, they shifted their focus from do what we say or else, you know, we'll yell at you to what are the people actually doing and let's provide them with a safe way to do that. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about, Bill, is understanding the work that needs to be done and providing the people with a safe and effective, efficient way for them to get the work done. Is that a fair enough uh, comparison? I think that's absolutely spot on. It's exactly right, Dan. And what's interesting is, you know, 
uh, just building on the whole reliability issue, you know, for the person who has to go and do the task. So that could be as easy as getting from one corner of the quadrangle to the other corner of the quadrangle. Am I going to take the grass or not? Hmm. Um, you know, what by building the pathways, what if, what does that do? It makes the transit simple. It makes it consistent and it makes it repeatable, right? Yeah. By building. So let's take that to a rooftop now. Okay. If many rooftops tend to be very complex environments, sometimes they can be hazardous environments because of the nature of the equipment, uh, chemical exposures, uh, you know, effluent from, you know, airborne effluent from the building site and on and on it can go. So there's, we want to control the way people behave on, on these rooftops. And one of the simplest ways we can do that is provide a collective protection. So that's guardrails, as you, as you mentioned, it's, access ways that are, are controlled. So for example, we might have a pipe that the people are going to climb over. Absolutely right. And that happens. We all know that happens every day. What we can do by making, by having an access point, building a step over a module or something like that, walkway module, is we can actually control where along the pipeline that is and make sure that keeps them away from other hazards that might be around as well, that they may not pay paying attention to in the moment of being on the roof. So absolutely, it, it, it just gives us a chance to meet their needs better, to make the level of safety better, to lower their exposure to other things that are not just falling. But also, it really makes things really simple. Why? If I've got a guardrail around the roof, I don't have to ask a person to deal with a harness and a lanyard and a lifeline and all the rest of it. They don't need to go for training to do that necessarily, at least not to the, nearly to the same degree. We don't need to worry about whether or not they're going to use it consistently every day because it's there. It doesn't require any real interaction from them. Okay. And then the repeatability is obvious. They can go up and down as much as is needed. So when you have high frequencies of access to the roof and things like that, this collective protection measures are far more safe. They're far more reliable measures to protect the people at work. And I should add, you know, a focus on collective protection is in the, in the jurisdictions that have lower fatality rates, a focus on collective um, protection is, is part of that mantra. And it's funny you think about, you know, you mentioned about don't walk on the grass, right? You know, there's a whole thing in the human psyche that I think in the safety business we need to pay attention to. And that is we spend a lot of time telling people what they can't do without telling them what they should do or what they can do. <laughs> right. If I say to you, don't think about elephants, what's the very first thing that pops in your head? <laughs> right. If I say, I want you to think about giraffes, then the elephants don't enter the equation. And in the safety bit, I mean, I know that sounds silly, but it isn't uh, in the safety business. This is really critically important mm. uh, because we spend a lot of time talking to people about limitations of equipment. Oh, I can't put two snap hooks in one hook, or I can't hook in, I need a compatible connection with that snap hook, or I can't take the scaffold hook and put it there, or I have to use one lanyard over another lanyard because I weigh more than the other guy, and on and on it'll go. Where in any of that do we tell them what they can do? Where's the enablers in that? Hmm. And the truth is they're not there, and it's because we're focused on the limitations of the equipment instead of enabling the people to have a say and engage in their own in their own protection. I think that's such a good point. And you know, just in my experience in fall protection, I'm always surprised uh, at you know some, the pushback that I receive. You know, within an organization, we'll be working with this 
with the safety managers there. And the pushback isn't from the people spending the money on the equipment. A lot of time, the pushback is from um, the people who the equipment is intended to protect. And I think what you're, I think a really good point to pull out of this is that if you're getting pushback from the people you're intending to protect, you probably haven't truly solved the problem. You've just replaced it with another one. You, you haven't solved the safety problem. You've just made a, a, an efficiency problem that still needs to be addressed. So I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, we're, at the end of the day, this is about protecting people. It's not about ticking a box or using equipment. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, it, it's absolutely right. And in those types of case, cases, we often find that we've taken one, one element of the safety process that's complex, simplified that by causing another complexity somewhere else. Mm. Yeah. And, and Bill, that, I mean, that ties right into my next question perfectly, which is, you know, in your experience, what is the most common mistake that you see safety professionals make when trying to implement fall protection solutions? I, I think the, the really big deal here is for us as safety professionals to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that we're trying to protect, to really be as empathetic as we can to what their situation is. I mean, especially, you know, in in a highly active environment, you know, a lot of the industrial places that, that folks go to work in are very active. There's lots going on around them. And we have to be mindful of that. We have to be mindful about what people are thinking on any, on any given day. I mean, it could be as simple. I talked earlier a little bit about distraction, right? It could be as simple as the person has a cold. And we've all been there where we have a cold and you pass through the day with a bit of a fog around you. You know, you're a bit stuffed up and you've got the, the, the medications in you or whatever for the symptoms and so forth. We have all that. And, you know, we pass through the day with a bit of a fog around us. And we go and, and we all know, if you think about it, if we all closed our eyes and think about thought about that for a minute, we'd realize um, that we're not our best selves in those days. Okay. So is that the day we're going to ask that person to go and do some complex task at height? Could be, but we don't always empathize with that situation. You know, we've got, we've got to be able to give those people confidence to go and do the job. And if they if they don't have the confidence, if they don't get the encouragement, the empathy, and the engagement, we could call those the three E's, if you like. If we don't get those three elements between us as safety professionals, as managers, as supervisors, with these people who are asking to go and do these tasks, we run the risk that they won't engage in their own safety. And I believe that that is what causes a disengagement uh, that lands us in the lowest common denominator of just being equipment focused. You know, I had my harness and lanyard on. I couldn't possibly understand what happened. Or I put my her. How many times have you seen, I have a harness and I have a lanyard, but I'm not tied to anything because I, I just, it's, it, it's too much of a distraction and I don't want it. I don't believe in it. We've seen that lots, you know. Yeah. So for us, our, our challenge as safety professionals is to engage with the workforce you know, they're, 
they are they're smarter sometimes than I think we give them credit for. In fact, you know, they're smart enough to do the job we've asked them to do. That's for sure. Right. They're smart enough to be active members of the community that we started talking about at the beginning. So their expectations are definitely in line with the community expectations that passes all the way down through the standards process and on to the shop floor. So we need to take that, engage with them, get their feedback, and use that to grow a culture of safety and safety behaviors that are risk assessed and, as I say, behavioral based so that people know what they have to do on that day when they're standing on the proverbial head of the pin with a snapbook in their hand or whatever the case might be, they know intrinsically what to do. We've given them a way to behave in a way that is simple, consistent, and repeatable so that they can get on with the tasks and be at, be at their best. Absolutely. I think that's such a powerful you know, concluding statement is that it's, it's about empathy. It's about understanding um, it's not about ticking a box or just being quote unquote OSHA compliance, um, at your site, right? If, if all we're doing as safety professionals is solving our problems, but that results in creating other ones, uh, we haven't really done anyone any good. So I think that's so important that we engage with both our, our workers on the front line to make sure that their safety is important. We engage with professionals, people who understand um, the the requirements and um, the different solutions that are out there, as well as the uh, people who are put in a position of authority and responsible for the safety of their workers and create kind of a team. Um, and we all work together to, to protect workers' lives and bring that number down, that fatality number down you know, from 3.5 to a 0.4 like they have in the UK. So I think that's that's so powerful, Bill. Anything that you'd like to add at all in conclusion uh, for our audience? Yeah, I think, I think I just want to reiterate this whole business of engagement. You know, we have, I grew up at a time when working at height wasn't what it is today. Yeah. Um, it, the safety training, the education, all of the the, the advent of the equipment that we use and the way we use it, and indeed the behavioral-based approaches that you see in many jurisdictions, is all grown out of the last close to 50 years now. For me, when I first went to work, uh, the safety training and the engagement in those activities was an add-on to my, my initial education. I think our generational challenge now is to look at the young people of my kids age, you know, my oldest son is, is just starting college. So we want to take the safety behaviors and the, and the culture of safety and, and, and confidence and protection and build that in to their education stream and not just send them on a course at the end of his education. If we build it into his education, he will intrinsically enter the workforce with an attitude of protection. And that is, I think, a real challenge for us. Uh, and a real opportunity for us as a community to raise our own expe expectations of each other. And I look forward to seeing that happen in the future. That's awesome. Absolutely, Bill. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so, Bill, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, thank you all to the listeners for joining us on this edition of the Rooftop Report by Key Safety. If you guys have any questions that you'd like us to answer, 
please email us at info at keysafety.com. I'm on a mission to find you the best experts to answer your fall protection related questions. For previous and upcoming episodes, subscribe to our channels on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To learn more about our safety solutions, visit our website, keysafety.com. That's K-E-E safety.com. I'm your host, Dan Huntington. And until next time, stay safe out there.